Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Dr. Matthew Vlasic, an associate professor at Louisiana State University and co-author of the Alt-Right Movement and U.S. National Security, along with Dr. Shannon Reed, an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. You can read the full article in Parameters Autumn 2021 issue. First, just thank you for, for joining me today. It's always fun yeah. to talk to our authors. So your article, The Alt-Right Movement and National Security, The January 6th Insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, White Supremacy, the U.S. Military. Many Americans might not make a connection between the three, but your article does. So let's talk about it. Is there a historic relationship between white supremacy and the military? Yes, unfortunately, there is kind of this relationship between the military and the white power movement. You know, this dates back to kind of the fallout of the Civil War and Reconstruction era as the former Confederate states were being forced to kind of rewrite their, their state constitutions, uh, allowing voting rights for black citizens. The U.S. Army was brought in as peacekeepers, and there's a lot of disgruntlement about that occupation, obviously. It was during that time that we start seeing, you know, kind of these vigilante white power groups proliferating. The Ku Klux Klan is obviously the most well-known, being founded by six Confederate veterans. But there's also a bunch of other of uh, these kind of white power groups that formed at this time. There's the Knights of the White Camellia, the White League. And so all of these were born because, again, this anxiety, this white anxiety about former slaves being included in the social order. And that included competing economically with white, middle and working class. And so as Reconstruction ended and the U.S. Army was pulled out, these former Confederate states were able to reassert the white supremacist social order. And at that time, because of that, you know, as society goes back to this normalization, a lot of this vigilante violence and these white power groups dissolved. But we might say, OK, well, this is just kind of a, an outlier moment, the Civil War being this kind of unique thing with American history. But we see this correlation, this pattern over time, every time a war or conflict ends involving the U.S. military. And you can see this with World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, particularly the Gulf War, and even and now today with the war on terror. And so this loss and frustration, feelings of doubt that Confederate veterans faced and felt after the Civil War is kind of a recurring theme that soldiers feel, right? Particularly with the Vietnam War and today's war on terror with Iraq and Afghanistan. So this is just kind of this recurring pattern. And, and in particularly recent books and studies have really focused on the Vietnam War being this overrepresentation period where you have a lot of veterans of the Vietnam War joining the white power movement, different groups and pushing that narrative with this failed war that, again, it's this corrupt bureaucratic government that really inhibited us from being successful. And this is kind of a transitional point that we see a little different from wars prior to Vietnam. But now since Vietnam, we see it over and over and over that, again, the government is the enemy because they didn't let us win the war. That kind of comes the narrative that we see up through today. Okay, so let's look at that. How did the white power movement impact the war on terror? And where does that leave us now? With this loss and frustration that service members felt with the end of the Vietnam and, and Confederate, we kind of see the same thing happening today, right? I mean, we've seen this now as our military operations have fell off in Iraq. And, and now with Afghanistan ending, there's definitely going to be this kind of upsurge of 
well, what does this all mean as you leave, right, the military? And so particularly with post 9-11 veterans having more likely been deployed, more likely serving in combat, experienced some type of trauma, they've had more difficulty transitioning to civilian life, and more of them feel less proud to have served than veterans that were before 9-11. So all these things are key things that white power groups can kind of latch onto and stoke these feelings of disillusionment more to kind of get their message bought into by veterans. A lot of these groups push out things with ideas of camaraderie and brotherhood, you know, not unlike what it feels like to be in a military. They provide an enemy to direct your attention towards, right? So again, helps galvanize this group. So whether that's liberals or Antifa or the federal government, depending again on who's in office, and even some of these more extreme groups offer paramilitary training. So it becomes this bastion to say, here's this place that you can come to that's no different than where you were and at least has the illusions of these similar things. Now, unfortunately, we really have have a kind of this limited knowledge of just how entrenched white power sympathies are among active service members. There was a poll in 2019 by Military Times, which showed that about a third of the troops that took part in that survey said they witnessed some type of white supremacist activity or, or racism with non-white members and being much more likely to observe these things than officers or white service members. You know, that kind of gives us a glimpse of things. Traditionally, the military's response has been inconsistent. It's kind of like when troops are needed, they tend to be a little bit more tolerant or turn the other way, uh, ignore things. But when things are not, and they're not time of war, then they tend to be a little more intolerant of these things. But overall, there's this tendency to say that there isn't, I don't want to say persistent, but like that it's not as present as maybe it actually is, right? It's kind of this idea that it's just this person or that person. It's kind of the one bad apple idea. Even though there's been kind of well-documented incidents over time uh, of service members participating in white power activities and violence, there hasn't been these sustained efforts to deal with it. With the insurrection on January 6th, this produces this inflection point that hopefully the military can finally have an opportunity to really take care of this and look at both active and discharged service members and try to think of a way that they can deal with these populations and make them less susceptible to white power narratives. It sounds like a big challenge. Are there any actionable steps that the military can take to combat the white power movement? There's a few things as far as thinking about military. So I'm a criminologist by training. And so there's been lots of studies to show that joining the military has a lot of positives for individuals. And that's totally legitimate. It makes sense. But at the same time, it's possible that these transitions in a service member's life course could also have negative impacts. There's been a lot less studies if any, on that. And, you know, when you think about these turning points for service members, we can try to trace these things or, or evaluate individuals throughout this process, right, and try to understand what's happening. So whether it's a positive incident, you know, someone gets promoted or someone gets some type of penalty or demotion or discharge, tracing these things and whether it's just some type of assessment or survey to follow what's going on with this individual, these might provide avenues for intervention or prevention programs to deal with these individuals when they might become susceptible to these extremist narratives. Those would be things to think about, you know, again, taking stock of the mental health issues. Also, as individuals come in, there could be some type of social media literacy or critical thinking training that gets put on. As again, everything is filtered through social media and the internet. There's been limited engagement by schools, or colleges, or you know, even the military, to actually take stock and critically evaluate the information that's being put out there to say, is this a legitimate source? Is this not a legitimate source? And question it. So those would be definitely things as individuals kind of come in and are in the military. And then 
exiting the military. So again, this is another big transitional stage where the rules that you follow are changing as they enter civilian life. Individual social networks shift with, again, people that if you're not leaving the military with a group of individuals and people are staying, you might lose that connectedness. Trauma, disillusionment, those feelings can come up. Lack of opportunities for individuals as far as work and things like that. So all these things can provide avenues for the white power narrative to peek in and try to get people to join these different groups. So exit interviews could be used, more type of robust career counseling, mental social health screenings. The veterans here could even kind of establish some type of social support groups to provide kind of alternative forums to help challenge and fight this disinformation narrative. Depending on the resources that the military wants to contribute to these things, they could be tailored. So again, trying to assess who those people are that are most vulnerable and directing the resources towards them. Or they could take a more blanket approach and just apply it to everyone. None of these things are going to have say negative for service members. So everyone would get at least some type of benefit from it. Obviously, some would get more than others. And another thing that can be done, and I think a lot of recent studies showing this with police misconduct, as far as whenever an officer or a service member is documented either supporting or engaging in white power sympathies or working with a white power group, instead of treating it as a discipline and order issue that gets handled within a unit, it should really be treated as a criminal matter and handled by the criminal investigative divisions. And by removing it from the unit, that allows for more of an unbiased approach to dealing with these things. Studies that have kind of looked at police misconduct more recently has shown that, that basically misconduct spreads through the social networks of a department. It has this contagion model effect. The same thinking can be used of trying to understand sympathetic attitudes and activities with white power groups, right? It's unlikely that it's just one bad apple in a unit. And if you remove him, that that unit is, is not going to have problems. It probably has other effects depending on who that person hangs out with, the duration of how long they hang out with each other, and such and such. And looking at things in that manner is two front end of dealing with these matters criminally. And then looking at service members and these kind of transitional points would be the two immediate things that could be done and have really effective consequences to kind of removing the influence of the white power movement. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. This was a really good chat. Awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcast Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.